This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking with Ben Ehrenreich about life for Palestinians on the West Bank. His new book is The Way to the Spring. Amy Willens will join us for that conversation. Also, we found something else to worry about, cyber attacks on the United States, paralyzing our electric grid and our water supply. Alex Gibney has a new documentary about that. It's called Zero Days, and it opens Friday. And one last thing, this week was the very last broadcast of a Prairie Home Companion on public radio. Call me a sentimental old Swede, but I was a fan of the show. I spoke with Garrison Keillor in 2003. We'll listen to a little bit of that interview as a way of saying goodbye. First up, maybe you heard the news. The FBI director announced Tuesday that Hillary Clinton will not be indicted for her handling of classified email on her private servers. Of course, that's really good news for the Democrats. The bad news is that the FBI director called Clinton, quote, extremely careless, close quote. But that provides a chance for her to face her critics head on. That's what Joan Walsh says. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and an MSNBC political analyst. She was editor-in-chief at Salon for six years. She's also written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and other papers. And she wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Well, none of us thought Hillary Clinton would be indicted for a crime. There, there was no crime in her handling of email. But what she got from the FBI was what the New York Times called a stern rebuke. Remind us what FBI Director James Comey said about Clinton's email on Tuesday. Well, as you said, I think I think the words that are really sticking to her uh, are extremely careless. Uh, and he also broke down her claims of never having sent uh, material that was marked classified. Now, we all know that there's a process. First of all, we all know, or those of us who pay attention know, that there's a problem with overclassification, right, and that there's been a problem. Some of what's been hard to, hard to figure out in this whole controversy is that there have been d disputes between agencies, for instance, between the State Department and the CIA, over 
whether certain pieces of information should be classified and if they're classified, whether they should be top secret, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of people, even some of her critics, uh, have accepted that there's been a lot of uh, dispute in this situation that's really not about her, her policies, her practices, what she did, but just kind of your run-of-the-mill, particularly, you know, particularly between the State Department and the CIA, kind of interagency battling. But, and he, and he, he, he acknowledged that. Uh, but he did take apart her claims to never having sent uh, anything that was marked classified and, and her claim that, that you know, pretty much everything that's been, that is now considered classified was up-classified in the jargon after she sent it. That, he said that that was not true. And he particularly pointed to seven. Now, you know, seven email chains, um, that's not zero, but it's not 100 either. Uh, and those seven email chains, he said, did contain information that, I'm forgetting exactly how he put it, he didn't quite say marked classified, but appeared to be marked classified. There was still some wiggle room even in what he said. And, you know, when you want to hear that zero pieces of information were, were marked classified, hearing seven is not great news. Clinton could easily say no indictment means that's the end of it and now it's time to move on, the future lies ahead. But you have argued that would be a mistake, that would be missing an opportunity for her. Please explain. Well, John, you know I've endorsed her, and I do think that she will make an excellent president. And I don't just say that given, uh, given her apparent uh, rival, Donald Trump. I, I, I endorsed her a long time ago when we thought that there would be more choices, and we, none of us necessarily thought there was a strong chance of Trump emerging as, uh, you know, as a Republican nominee. So I say this as someone who supports Clinton. But, you know, even I have had to admit over the years that she uh, – she, she seems to, at the very best interpretation, not concern herself greatly with the appearance of propriety on certain occasions. I certainly think that applies to taking, you know, six figures from Goldman Sachs for speeches at a time when Democrats uh, and right-thinking people know we need to be cracking down on Wall Street, not cozying up to them. And I think there were lots of, of things about this private email server situation uh, and the way that that classified information was handled, uh, that 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 were not as careful as, as as she should have been, and she's suffering politically. Even, you know, I, I think that this is morally the right thing to do, but I think it's also the, politically the right thing to do because even if I happen to mostly trust her, she's got a problem. Even though she's leading Donald Trump, and we can all you know be relieved at that. Seven out of ten American voters in the last poll, in the, you know, I, I believe it was NBC, Wall Street Journal said that they have some issues with her trustworthiness. That's not a great way to, it may be, a, it may be a, a way to get elected given who you're dealing with, Donald Trump, but it's not a great way to start being president. So I, I, I'm of the opinion, and some other great you know, liberal writers uh, who also support her, like Michael Tomaski, we have argued that she really needs to address this, that it, that it could be a first step in bringing that number of seven, seven in ten down a little bit by really grappling. You know, she's made a lot of heartfelt comments on the campaign trail about how it bothers her that people don't trust her and you know she often chalks it up to you know 25 years uh on the firing line facing the, the vast right-wing conspiracy and all of those things are true but there's also an element of her own doing in this and i really i really wish she would take the opportunity to say i have heard 
uh, Director Comey's criticism. I have taken it to heart. I intend to, you know, when I'm president, I intend to address uh, these culture issues that he's identified at the State Department and perhaps elsewhere. And I commit myself to transparency. Now, I wouldn't commit myself to the most transparent administration in history because I believe Barack Obama did, and, and that was not uh, – he, he delivered on a lot of campaign promises. That wasn't one of them. Um, but I, I, think, I think she needs to, to meet a higher standard, and I really think she could conceivably turn this, if not in her favor, turn it into uh, an opportunity for some of her critics to perhaps hear her in a different way. The New York Times today on page one called FBI Director Comey's statement about Hillary a ready-made attack ad because it criticized both her judgment and her competence, which, of course, are the basis of her campaign. Uh, I, I wonder if you agree about that. I mean, I cannot disagree about it being a ready-made attack ad. There are, you know, he bristled, he bristled with uh, indignation at several points in, in his long statement. I was going to say I'm not going to criticize him, but I think I am going to criticize him. Okay. I, I do think, or at least I'm going to raise a question. There are a lot of scholars who, there are some scholars, there are some former FBI officials who have suggested that, that Comey went too far, that he went even beyond the scope of what he's able to do. That was an unprecedented uh, press statement. Normally, as you know, John, what the FBI will do in a situation like this, sometimes they don't even say anything. You know, we didn't, they don't bring charges. We don't know what happened. We just know charges are never brought. He obviously felt that, you know, given the cloud hanging over her, she's about to be nominated for president, that he needed to say something. He could have just come out and said, we have, we have wrapped up a long, a 15-month investigation and we will not be bringing charges. He obviously felt that he needed to do more of that because of the, the, I suppose, because of the political appearances. His situation was made a bit worse last week when uh, Bill Clinton met with uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch on her plane. We, we won't discuss that at length, but there were situations that led him to conclude that his credibility required, that the, the trust in his judgment required that he be transparent in a word. Uh, with what he found and what he didn't find. And so I mostly give him the benefit of the doubt uh, on that. I think he probably went beyond the scope of, of what, he, what he needed to do. Uh, and, and thus he did. He did offer a ready-made attack ad. And yet, you know, John, the thing that's crazy about this is that it's not enough. You know, Comey, Comey is a Republican who worked on the Whitewater investigation. He has no love for the Clintons. He is beloved by Republicans. And now Paul Ryan and others are suggesting that, you know, he pulled his punches, that he acted politically. Donald uh, Trump has suggested that Loretta Lynch was, quote, bribed. He's being hauled in front of the uh, House Intelligence Committee at some point this week. I'm not sure if they have a day yet. So... For Republicans, no good deed goes unpunished, uh, and and even though a lot of people have said he's gone too far and perhaps went farther than he was allowed to go legally, it wasn't far enough for Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. Well, the New York Times uh, may regard it as a ready-made attack ad, but that's not the way Donald Trump uh, handled it. He He did not pick up on the FBI's criticism of Clinton. In, instead, he attacked the FBI. Uh, in a post on Twitter, he said David Petraeus, the former CIA director, had been charged for doing far less than uh, Hillary Clinton 
and that the lack of charges against her showed that the system was rigged. Remind us about David Petraeus being charged with a misdemeanor. What was that about? Well, David Petraeus had shared notebooks and briefing books and other things uh, with his biographer and also at that time his mistress. So that was much more egregious. The, the reason that, that, that reasonable people knew that she would never be indicted is that to be indicted, to have committed a crime, she would have had to knowingly and willingly share this information. And she would have had to do it either intending to hurt American security or with reckless disregard of American security. She did neither. Petraeus certainly did not inadvertently reveal these things to his biographer. It was obviously intentional. That's the big difference. And uh, so, you know, Trump, again, misunderstands the situation, uh, again, is not paying attention, again, again, you know, passes up what is actually kind of a great political opportunity for him to overreach, to sound preposterous, to be uh, an imbecile, and to attack someone who actually, you know, again, handed him a ready-made campaign attack ad, except he's not making campaign attack ads. He has no money. He's not making ads, and he's shedding staff by the day. It's a revolving door on that campaign. They staff up. They hire people to do normal things like handle surrogates and be their surrogates even, uh, and, and be their political director. And, you know, within a week to two to three weeks, they're out the door because he's a narcissist who can't delegate responsibility for something he's never done, run a national campaign, to anybody but himself and perhaps a family member. So I guess Clinton is lucky to have an opponent who lacks judgment and competence. <laughs> it's better to be lucky than good, and she's very, very lucky. That's right. If we want to call her, uh, if, if, if she's being called careless, uh, he is beyond careless. He is reckless. And, and I think that, again, there was lots in that report on Tuesday to, to give her pause and, and to give her heartburn and to make even supporters of her hers wince. On the other hand, I don't think it's likely to change any minds, again, given her opponent. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about cyber warfare. You think we don't have enough to be scared about in the world today? Terrorist attacks, global warming, unstoppable viruses? Well, there's more. And now to give us a lot more to worry about, we have a new documentary from Alex Gibney. Alex's documentaries have been great. Last year, he made Going Clear, Scientology in the Prison of Belief. It won all kinds of awards, and it was the most-watched HBO documentary in a decade. His other films include Taxi to the Dark Side. That's the one about torture at a U.S. military base in Afghanistan. It won an Oscar. He made Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, that was a film that chronicles one of the greatest corporate scandals in American history, and it won lots of awards. And he made the unforgettable documentary about one sex abuse case in the Catholic Church. That film was called Mea Maxima Culpa. It also won all kinds of awards. Now he's got a new film. It opens Friday, July 8th. It's called Zero Days, and it's scary as hell. 
Alex Gibney, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. Well, I just got a new PC last week. It has Windows Defender. Will that protect me from the Stuxnet virus? No. (laughs) You're out of luck. So Stuxnet reprogrammed the controls of automatic machinery, causing them to fail sometimes in dramatic ways. How secret was this story when you started to make a film about it? Well, interestingly enough, the story was known. I mean, uh, David Sanger had written about it in the New York Times and also in a book uh, he wrote called Confront and Conceal. But you wouldn't know that from the U.S. government, who denied that it happened and and refused to talk about it. But it, it was known. I think what wasn't quite as well known were the the larger context of it and also the the larger operation in, in which it was imbued. And, and that became clearer, you know, as 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 Obama started negotiating the ultimate nuclear arms treaty with Iran. Part of your new documentary, Zero Days, is a kind of a spy thriller about how the Americans and the Israelis sabotaged the Iranian nuclear weapons program. Fill us in a little bit about that story and the role of Stuxnet, the the killer worm. (laughs) So Stuxnet is a piece of malware, a very sophisticated piece of malware that was designed jointly by the U.S. and Israel. And basically, what it did was it infiltrated a programmable uh, logic controller, a PLC, inside the Natanz nuclear plant. So it took over the control machinery that operated the centrifuges, which were enriching uranium. And it made them spin at much higher than usual rates and then slowed them way down, so much so that ultimately it exploded about a 1,000 centrifuges. But the genius of this, and again, this was an autonomous piece of malware, so that nobody pressed go for this attack to occur. Once it infected the system, it decided on its own when to attack. But it also had this brilliant Ocean's Eleven aspect to it, which it sent a message back to the engineers at Natan saying, all is well, all systems go, even as their centrifuges were exploding. So because it was so secret, because it was invisible on the system, it sowed incredible doubt with the scientists at the Natanz plant who felt that they were the ones who had screwed up. One of the American officials you interview is Michael Hayden, the former head of both the CIA and the NSA. He has this very memorable phrase where he says the American attack on the Iranian nuclear plant with the Stuxnet virus had, quote, a whiff of August 1945 about it. Of course, he's talking here about Hiroshima, August 6th, 1945, (laughs) we historians uh, know. Do you think it was really that big a deal? Hiroshima killed 60,000 people. Isn't this just uh, computer hacking? Nobody was killed. But the reason it has a whiff of August 1945 is it's a completely new kind of weapon system that has the capacity in the future for enormous damage. And one of the things we discovered in the film was an operation that went way beyond Stuxnet, something called Nitro Zeus, which targeted the Iranian power grid and basically was designed to shut down an entire country. In a world in which we're so interconnected via the Internet, the ability to shut down critical infrastructure is existential. So it has the capacity for enormous destruction. And when you say critical infrastructure, you mean... Turning off the electricity, 
turning off the water, water filtration systems, turning trains into weapons that 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 crash into each other, turning planes into weapons, taking control of anything that's connected to the internet and actually rewiring the instructions to do uh, damage. And we saw evidence of this actually recently in December, where the Ukrainian power grid was shut down for about six hours by a piece of malware, largely believed to have been devised by the Russians. And that was a Stuxnet-like virus, which is which took control of the electrical grid and shut it down. And this could lead to the deaths of people, indeed many, many people, if we're deprived of water, power, transportation networks, and so on. So the whiff of August 1945 is not such an unrealistic thing to, to say about the potential here. That's correct. It's not the code itself which is so damaging. It's what the code does and the degree to which it shuts down things that are critical for us to survive. One of the things that happened with the successors to the Stuxnet virus was that the Iranians retaliated with uh, another version of the same cyber weapon. The malware grew. It infected other systems all over the world. Pandora's box was opened and a toxic worm got loose. I hate those toxic worms. <laughs> yeah, they're bad. They're bad. You don't want to be around when they, they come looking for you. No, I think the the interesting thing about this was it was designed to be secret, but for for reasons of impatience, the Stuxnet virus spread all over the world. In fact, it's still spreading. You know, if you're connected to the right printer, you might get the Stuxnet virus. We had a copy of the Stuxnet virus on our computer at work. Luckily, we didn't have any, uh, we weren't connected to any PLCs which controlled nuclear centrifuges, so it didn't do us any damage. So this is where my question of Windows Defender uh, returns. <laughs> exactly. You know, Stuxnet could get past Windows Defender. It, it, it had, it was brilliant in terms of the number of ways it could infiltrate autonomously computers all over the world. It spread on its own without anybody having to click. There was no Nigerian prince involved. Now, the second part of Zero Days is about Stuxnet arriving in the United States <laughs> and became understood as a, became understood to be a massive threat to the homeland. Yes, this I found really amusing. We didn't know this when we first started the film, but we, we did our research and found a guy who's in charge of defending the United States against cyber attacks, uh, uh, somebody uh, at uh, the Department of Homeland Security. When Stuxnet hit the operations at DHS, he was in a panic. He felt that this was a weapon so powerful it was now targeting the American infrastructure. What dastardly country could have been behind such an attack? In fact, there's even a lovely moment in the film where we have a Senate hearing where Senator Joseph Lieberman wonders what nation would have been so dastardly as to try to come after the United States. Of course, it was the United States itself and Israel. And, and the NSA never told the Department of Homeland Security what this was and where it was coming from. Uh, well, and the Department of Homeland Security did ask. But um, <laughs> what they might have said was, it's classified or we have no idea. They got no help whatsoever. One fascinating question about 
to take a step back how the Stuxnet virus got into the Iranian computers at the Natanz facility. Natanz is air-gapped. I feel so proud of myself for being able to say that. Natanz is air-gapped. That means their computers are not connected to the Internet. They do not have Wi-Fi. So how do you get a toxic worm across an air gap, our listeners want to know. <laughs> well, one way is to have spies. And the first way they did it was to have a spy who got inside Natanz, likely with a flash drive, and plugged it in, and then it infected the local system. Over time, though, we're fairly certain that they lost that human access to the Natanz plant and had to find another way in. And that was by massively infecting the IT firms that surrounded Natanz, the people who fixed the computers inside Natanz. Once their computers were infected, they brought the virus in with them when they went to fix the computers. But the danger of that was that actually, once you infected those IT firms, it didn't just spread into Natanz, it spread everywhere. And this was as a result of uh, an Israeli modification of the code at a certain point in time, the Israelis, uh, pressured by Bibi Netanyahu, became impatient in order to ratchet up the level of destruction inside the plant and came up with a, a version of the code which was much more aggressive and also had flaws in it. So it started to shut down computers, and that's how it was discovered. The Israelis were very proud of their success at getting the Stuxnet virus inside the Natanz nuclear facility and forcing the Iranian centrifuges to explode. How much damage did they actually do to the Iranian nuclear program? At the end of the day, not that much. In point of fact, once the Iranians finally discovered that the Stuxnet virus uh, was responsible for blowing up, uh, say, a thousand centrifuges, they went on an extremely aggressive ramp-up program and expanded massively the number of centrifuges that were producing uranium. So it had the opposite impact. Uh, in addition, it also propelled Iran to develop its own cyber army, and that's what accounted for attacks on Saudi Aramco, uh, U.S. banks, and also we've recently discovered a, an attempted attack on a New York state water filtration system. This is a message film, and the message is that secrecy about cyber weapons is harming us. What exactly is the harm? The harm is that there are powerful weapons which are destabilizing the Internet and modern life as we know it, but we're not allowed to discuss them because the United States is keeping them secret. The, uh, the Obama administration has said an awful lot about the importance of cyber defense, but they're staying mum, largely speaking, on the matter of cyber offense. The reason that's a problem is because the United States may be the most vulnerable country on Earth because we are so interconnected via the Internet. And we know that not only do we have cyber weapons waiting like time bombs in the computer systems of other countries, other countries have those same time bombs inside our critical infrastructure systems waiting for a moment to strike. Creating that much potential destabilization and having it be absolutely secret seems to me terrifying. Your film has an unlikely hero, Michael Hayden, <laughs> former head of the, both the CIA and the NSA. He's the one who delivers the message that we need to have 
arms-controlled negotiations about cyber weapons like we have had with nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, and biological weapons. Were you surprised that Michael Hayden was so outspoken about this? I was. You know, first of all, Michael Hayden has been a longtime advocate of absolute secrecy when it comes to the NSA and, and the CIA and is not uh, very uh, fond of, uh, 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 of giving away anything. But in this case, he referred to programs about cyber weapons as hideously overclassified. And he, along with Richard Clark, and Richard Clark and Michael Hayden don't always agree on a lot, both felt that you need some kind of overarching framework like we have with nuclear weapons, like we have with chemical weapons, like we have with biological weapons to govern these systems or else we're going to be in a lot of trouble. The frightening new film by Alex Gibney about cyber warfare is called Zero Days. It's opening in New York, L.A., in theaters across America, Friday, July 8th. It's also on iTunes and video on demand the same day. Alex, thank you for scaring the hell out of us, and thanks for coming in today. Always a pleasure, John. The Everyday Struggles of Palestinian Life, that's the subject of the new book by Ben Ehrenreich. He spent most of the last three years in the West Bank living with Palestinian families in villages and in cities. He's an award-winning writer whose work has appeared in Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, and The London Review of Books, among other publications. He's also written two novels. His new book is titled The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. Ben Ehrenreich, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. And we're also joined by Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and a veteran of this show. She also worked as Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and wrote an unforgettable novel about life on the West Bank. It's called Martyr's Crossing. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Ben, to uh, understand Palestinian life today, you lived in a West Bank village, Nabi Saleh. How, how did you pick that one? Um, well, I never lived there for more than a few weeks. When I lived there, I lived in Ramallah, but I spent a fair amount of time there, even when I wasn't living there. And I first went to Palestine as a reporter in 2011 on an assignment for Harper's Magazine to write about the role of water in the occupation. And I had heard about Nabi Saleh because in Nabi Saleh, like a bunch of other villages in the West Bank at the time, they were having weekly protests every Friday. Most of the villages um, that did that were on the course of the wall and were protesting the confiscation of their land in the construction of the wall. But Nabi Saleh was protesting the confiscation of a spring, just a, a water spring, by settlers who lived across the valley in a settlement called Halamish. And I spent... I went one day for the demonstration, a Friday, um, and in those days the demonstrations would last many hours. What fascinated me about Nabi Saleh was that, that by resisting, um, by staging these protests every Friday, they were bringing upon themselves like extraordinary suffering. Um, you know, every every Friday during the protest, they were risking their lives, risking their families' lives, um, because the soldiers would invariably um, come at them very hard 
um, with, you know, with tear gas, sometimes with live fire, with, with various other forms of munitions. And they would come back during the week and they would raid people's homes in the middle of the night and they would arrest people. They would arrest people's children. They would trash their houses. So they were sort of inviting into their lives extraordinary oppression. And all they had to do to kind of reduce it to the, the baseline humiliation that people suffer elsewhere in the West Bank was to stop protesting every Friday. And that they did not do and would not do. And I was interested in, in what it takes to, to keep struggling against a force that's impossibly more powerful than you are and to keep going back knowing that in any kind of concrete way you can't win, um, that they were not going to topple the occupation all by themselves, um, but they were willing to, to, to take on all these sacrifices to, um, to keep fighting. And, and it was that that, that that fascinated me and kept me going back there. What interested me about Nabi Saleh was the basically unarmed resistance. Because when I was living in Jerusalem, uh, there was certainly armed resistance during the years of Oslo. I was there from 1995, basically all the way through 19, the beginning of 1999, and was an era of bus bombings and suicide bombings. So for me to read all about this ongoing, basically to my mind, obviously the Israelis feel something other happening, this peaceful resistance was inspiring but I wondered to myself, as I read today a list of all the Israelis killed during the uh, during the Second Intifada uh, by uh, Palestinian violence, I wondered to myself whether, you know, the wall, which is such a hateful symbol and a repugnant Kafka-like edifice, hasn't actually forced the Palestinians into this kind of behavior, rather than, you know, having them be on the other side capable of more violent, dramatic actions. No, I think, you know, because the, the, the first of these um, unarmed demonstrations took place in villages along the path of the wall. First in, in places like, uh, places that lost, like places like Bidu, um, then in a, a village called Budrus, which actually right. won and, and was able to get the wall moved. And they continue in places like Bilin and, and Nialin. So before the wall was built, when the wall was being built, and while suicide bombs were going into Israel, and while there was, you know, real combat throughout the West Bank, um, in the cities and in the villages, people in these villages decided that that wasn't the, the tactic they were going to use. They were going to try something, something different that they thought would be more effective. And, you know, I think um, it's also, if, if the horrible events of the last six, seven months have made anything clear, it's that the wall does not prevent violence. You know right. that that uh, that you know people have been going into Israel and attacking Israeli civilians despite the wall, um, and the wall didn't stop them at all. Your first chapter is titled "Life Is Beautiful." Uh, almost everything that happens in this chapter is terrible. So, who said life is beautiful, and what do they mean? A little boy who, at the time, I think was five or six, named Salam uh, Tamimi. Um, who was the youngest son um, of the family that I was staying with. I'm trying to remember the exact circumstances in which he said that. I think we were all sitting around outside the house one evening and discussing the, the horrors of the day. Um, and Salam just announced, my name is Salam, which of course means peace. Um, and life is beautiful, you know, in this, with this uh, force that only a six-year-old can bring to a declaration like that. And, it, you know, it struck me that he was right. And I, and I think that that was something that I wanted to make sure was clear throughout this book, which is a book about really sad and 
heartbreaking and off, often really awful things happening um, in this really protracted way. That despite that, you know, people love one another and people love their lives and um, and find beauty in their lives and find beauty in each other. And I mean, that was certainly a constant for me while I was there. And and I wanted to make sure that that readers felt that too. The people who march to the spring are not just Palestinian villagers. There are some international solidarity activists, and there are some Israelis. There's one named Jonathan Pollock. Tell us about Jonathan Pollock. Jonathan's an interesting guy. He was one of the founders of a group called Anarchists Against the Wall that from the very beginning, the very early days, I think they started in 2002, it might have been 2003, um, but from the, the very earliest days of the construction of the wall, um, a small group of Israelis, Jonathan among them, started uh, going to Palestinian villages and offering their solidarity and, and offering, you know, their their presence um, in whatever way it could could be helpful to those those struggles. And Jonathan, all these years later, now, you know, more than a decade later, you can count on it on almost every Friday, you'll find him in Nabi Saleh. There are, there are others who do this as well. Jonathan has been arrested, I think, more than more than 50 times, I think. I've certainly seen him arrested at least half a dozen times, if not more. That alone, I think, is, is, is instructive in that Jonathan has, he's arrested and he's let go. Once, I think, he was sentenced to about a month in, in prison. Um, whereas, of course, if a Palestinian is arrested under the same circumstances, they are not, they're generally not released the same day. And, you know, they're tried under a completely different military court system, which, uh, holds on to them for considerably longer and treats them with considerably fewer rights. Basim, your friend and the central figure in the protests at the spring, talked uh, briefly about suicide bombings. Of course, American, what Americans know about the Palestinian struggle is mostly the reports in the mainstream media of suicide bombings. He called suicide bombings the big mistake. What, what did he mean? What was he talking about? He meant that, I think in a, probably in more complicated ways than I'm going to um, make clear, that they were an enormous tactical mistake. That, and the great cost of suicide bombings was exactly what you say, that, that after the years of the First Intifada, when Palestine was able to project this international image that sort of corrected um, a lot of the kind of spectacular terrorism of the 1970s and the, and the early 80s, that after the first intifada, the image of pa the Palestinian struggle abroad was of kids throwing rocks at tanks. Um, it was of an unarmed resistance against a much more powerful enemy. And that all of that was sacrificed by suicide bombs. That, 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 was, that, was, that sort of disappeared in the consciousness of the international community, and people instead understood Palestinian struggle in terms of terrorism, in terms of attacks on civilians, et cetera, et cetera. And that this was a, this was a huge setback. And one of the things that, that he was trying to, hoping to correct through the kind of unarmed resistance that Nabi Saleh was offering was another vision of what it might mean to resist, not just for other Palestinians, but for the world. But wasn't his family, in fact, the, the broad Tamimi family, involved in a lot of uh, quite violent actions against Israelis. I'm thinking of the attack in which possibly he participated and was arrested for, but his cousin Nizar was arrested for. The attack on Haim Mitzrahi, in which the guy was basically knifed to death. Uh, and it was a political action. And also Ahlam Tamimi, another, I assume, cousin or distant relation of, of Basim's who was the woman, young woman, uh, who 
uh, selected the Sabaro Pizza uh, outlet in Jerusalem as a target for a suicide bombing, brought the suicide bomber there, instructed him to stay for 15 minutes, have his pizza, and then blow himself up. You know, what you say in the book about her. How, how many people were killed at Sparrow? Fifteen people. Eight of them, arguably, children, if you count down from the age of 18. And what you say about her in the book is her relatives in Nabisala still speak of her with great affection. She was released in the exchange for uh, Gilad Shalit. So, you know, he may say it was a bad, big mistake, but isn't the Tamimi family somehow, weren't they complicit in the whole action? Yeah, you know, I think the, the Tamimi family, like like most Palestinian families in the West Bank or in Gaza, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Palestinian family that doesn't have strong ties to the military resistance, um, to, to armed resistance, whether that's suicide bombs or the kind of attack that Bassam's cousins, three cousins, were convicted in, um, and which Bassam was originally charged in, on Hayam Mizrahi that resulted in his death. No one, no one disowns this violence, and... You know, what, what Bassam, the way he always articulated to me was, like, we have a right to resist. Um, we're people under occupation. We have a right to resist with whatever means are at our disposal. Under international law, we have a right to resist. He feels that they tried a military route. It failed. It lost them a great deal of international standing. It is impossible for Palestinians with the limited resources available to them to pose any real threat to the Israeli army. And therefore, they had to try something else. But, but people there don't disown those acts, you know, in much the same way that I think uh, a lot of Israeli families would would not be willing to admit that they're ashamed of, of family members for, for being members of the IDF and taking part in... Um, in the Gaza attacks. In example. the Gaza attacks or in, you know, in, in many other things. I'm completely upfront in the book about, you know, I don't hide these 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 incidents. But you don't feature them either. I don't feature them either. And the reason is that I think... To get too um, caught up in them means suggesting, which I'm not willing to do, that some people have a right to violence and other people do not. Um, and I think that's, when, when I would talk about it with Bassam, that's what, what he would end up saying. You know, nobody asks the Israelis to give up their right to violence. Nobody asks the Israelis to, you know, to put down their weapons and no longer engage in violence. Um, and but Palestinians are expected to disown violence, to to refuse it, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I th I think this is problematic. Um, that you know we call certain things terrorism, and we call other things you know sort of legitimate state violence. I agree with you, but I looked at Ahlam Tamimi, and you know when she's talking about at leaving Sabaros after the bomb went off, and she says, oh, at first I heard we had killed three, and no one on the bus knew that I was the one who was responsible, but I was so excited. And then when I heard it was 12, that was even better, and everyone was clapping. You get the feeling, of course, that these people need to express their extreme unhappiness. But there's a, an element of gloating that you wish... We're not so uncomfortable and horrible in a young woman like her who's obviously bright and, you know, would have been wonderful in another setting. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot of extremely ugly emotions on, on, on all sides of this, and, and um, I certainly wouldn't try to hide that. I also don't want to, you know, minimize, like, the real suffering and pain that, that suicide bombing has caused in Israel. I don't go into that in any great depth because... 
That's I, not what the book is about. That's not what the book is about. And I think any American who's read anything about this topic at all has probably read a lot about the suffering that Israelis have, the Israelis have endured because of suicide bombings, and they don't need it from me again. Um, and I don't think I need to touch that base. And I don't think people should be required to touch that base if they're going to talk about this conflict. Well, we're just about out of time here. The big question that brought you to this book and that we need the answer to is <laughs> what makes it possible for these people to keep fighting against such tremendous odds? I mean, in a way, the book is a, is a 400-page answer to that question. Um, so it's hard to summarize it. But yes. I think um, from, from a great distance, occupation looks miserable and, and, and we see the violence and whatnot. But one thing we don't see is the, the horrific choices um, that this kind of violence puts before everybody, um, these, these impossible moral decisions. And one of them is, is to resist or not to resist. If you resist, you, you risk losing everything. You know, if you choose not to, you also will certainly lose a lot. Ben Ehrenreich, his new book is The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. Ben, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me on, John. And Amy Willens, thank you too. Thanks. One last thing. Garrison Keillor did the very last broadcast of A Prairie Home Companion last weekend on public radio. Call me a sentimental old Swede, but I was a fan of the show. Garrison Keillor is also a writer for The New Yorker. I spoke with him in 2003 and asked if he had any advice for people who want to be writers. Uh, I'm a writer, and I earn a living by writing, and, and um, there's a glut of writers in the world today. Too many books, I've noticed. There's just too, ma too many books, TMB. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm not here to encourage anybody. I don't think you would expect me to. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough, miserable, rotten way to spend your, your time. <laughs> You'd be a lot better <laughs> off drawing something else if you want to have a happy life. Much better, <clears throat> much better. Teaching, for example, teaching in a middle school. That would be my idea of a happy life. Stay away from, from writing. Uh, you, you brought uh, a Prairie Home Companion to the Greek theater last summer. The place was packed for two nights. I was out there. I have to say, you made live radio before a live audience really exciting. And I'm still trying to figure out, I wonder if you know, what is it that makes singing the powder milk biscuit song with 10,000 other people so much fun well i enjoy it because i'm because i'm at an age when um you know you've learned too much about yourself and so to sing something that you really know the words to and a song that you wrote so nobody can tell you that it's wrong like the powder milk biscuit song is <laughs> it's something you can do uh, wholeheartedly it gets harder and harder as you get older to do things wholeheartedly and it also helps that there is essentially no competition. There are no other live radio shows. Lack of competition has been the secret of our success. The moment somebody else should spring up and do this, we, 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 would, we would fold like a pair of threes. We would, just, we, would, we would fade into the underbrush. Well, thank you for that, and thanks for coming in today. Thanks, John. 
Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Oriano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.